Welcome to the Build My Online Store podcast, where we discuss everything and anything about running an online store. If you like the podcast, sign up for the mailing list to get news and updates at buildmyonlinestore.com. And now, here's your host, Terry Lynn. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Build My Online Store podcast. I'm your host, Terry. And this week, I have Andrew from Right Channel Radios, where we talk about the drop shipping model and e-commerce. And so for those who aren't familiar, drop shipping is where you run the e-commerce website. And when a customer puts an order online, the supplier or wholesaler actually sends it from their warehouse and charges you for the item. And then in return, you charge the customer and you make a profit as a middleman in between without carrying the inventory. And so we discussed the pros and cons of this model and kind of how he grew it from a business that started with only $1,500 to over a million dollars now. And we talk about how to choose a market to get into and general tips and time frames of what you can expect if you're going to take this path in e-commerce. And before we start, some news and updates about the show. Uh, we'll be starting some live online masterclasses about e-commerce soon. So just to give an idea, the format is generally live online and everyone connects via computer onto this software where we can see everyone. We can do presentations, we can do Q&A, uh, I can bring people that talk about SEO, uh, marketing, conversions, all onto this platform. And we can just have a live interaction about a class that talks about these topics and also to learn about your business and kind of do some live Q&A. And so uh, the reason I'm doing this is because interviewing this show on the podcast is very one direction. Uh, for example, I'm just talking into a microphone now and the audience doesn't really get an opportunity to discuss specific problems that are happening within their business. And secondly, I think being a solopreneur is very lonely and in the long term, I think there's real potential to build a community around this where we can just discuss everyone's businesses, their problems, and network within a trusted environment based around this show and the listener base. When I look on LinkedIn and various e-commerce forums, the quality is just not that good. And because anyone can join, anyone can post random spammy comments, maybe good advice is there, but you know, the time and investment return you're getting is just not that high. And I think if we can build a community, this is something good that'll that'll benefit really everyone in the e-commerce space. So uh, these live events, uh, kind of online classes, is just a small step in that direction. And so what I do need your help is on deciding which topics to start off with first. And so I have put up a one-question survey, uh, just kind of uh, some brainstorming some topics. If you can go to buildmyonlinestore.tv, uh, like television.tv, you could just fill out the survey. It'll be a great help in kind of giving me a direction on where to take this. So once again, the domain is buildmyonlinestore.tv. Thanks a lot, and let's get on with this week's show. All right, welcome to this week's episode. I'm joined by Andrew over at Ride Channel Radios and also E-Commerce Fuel, where he blogs about his e-commerce experiences. What's going on, Andrew? Good to, good to chat with you. So I understand you came from the finance background too, right? I did, yep. Yeah. Uh, I actually worked for a couple years out of college for, for a real small boutique investment bank here in the States in the Northwest. So spent two and a half years with them before before I quit to, to start my e-commerce business. So how did you think about e-commerce while you were still at your job? To be honest with you, I, I, I didn't have e-commerce um, as a firm plan in my job. I knew I wanted to do something else. After 
you know, after probably two and a half years in, in the banking world, a great learning experience, worked with some fantastic people, but it just wasn't what I wanted for the rest of my life. Not very much flexibility. You know, the life work balance was, was, was pretty rough. So I just knew I wanted to do something different, start something on my own. And I actually didn't figure out what that was until I, I quit. So, I, you know, saved up some money, um, quit, and then evaluating all my options in terms of what I wanted to do. Wanted something I could, you know, start and run from anywhere. Wanted something I could get into with minimal capital and something that also offered, you know, the prospects for, for real estate growth and, and being able to support myself full time. And so just kind of after researching a bunch of different ideas, uh, I'd settle on e-commerce. So why don't you tell us about your uh, radio business and how did you find this market? It actually was was kind of a, uh, a top-down approach. My philosophy was I really want to start a, a profitable business. And having spent two and a half years, you know, kind of in a career that uh, I didn't want to do the rest of my life and and trying to carve out this this period of time where I felt like it might have been one of the few opportunities I had to to make, you know, get a business off the ground. My primary goal was was success and profitability. And so with that in mind, I just I identified some key metrics that a profitable niche would have online. And so some of those would be, for example, uh, something that had, you know, enough demand to make it worthwhile, but wasn't overly competitive, a niche where I could add value. I think you'll if you talk to most successful, you know, e-commerce owners or people who've got some traction, they're going to tell you they don't compete on price with the exception of maybe Amazon and a few other people. You know, price just is a rough way to go. And so I want it's something where I could add value and be able to charge not a premium price, but enough to make it worth my while. And also really I just add value to, to the niche, help people make great, great buying decisions. So I could charge a premium price. Also find something where there was uh, there was a lot of accessories. The margins on accessories are significantly higher than on, on bigger, bigger priced items. And then finally, suppliers, finding a niche where there was some good quality dropshipper supply or drop shipping suppliers that I could use. And so kind of had these criteria in mind. And then I went out and just did a ton of brainstorming and narrowed it down to a list of, you know, four or five and then pick the one that uh, that I thought at the time was was the best option and just kind of rolled with it. And so how did you test the demand for radios? Primarily, the way I did that was uh, just using the Google Keyword Tool. And so looking at that, looking for local demand. The other way was just to get a site up as quickly as possible and see what kind of traction I got. So it's kind of a two-pronged approach. In the early days, I used uh, pay-per-click advertising to drive some, drive traffic, get an idea for the indication of the commercial intent of the market to see if you know if people were actually interested in buying CB radios or if if maybe they were just looking for uh, you know information on it or schematics or not non-commercial information or non-commercial, uh, you know, solutions. It was really just kind of a combination of both of those. Okay, so this is the four-hour work week, pay-for-click, test a landing page, whole model. Is that right? A little bit. It's a little bit different. It's, it's even a real basic e-commerce site. You know, it's, it's it's a lot easier today with with places like Shopify, Big Commerce, and, and these hosted carts that let you get a, a site up quickly. But it's not something you're going to do in, you know, uh, after lunch and an afternoon before you go play, you know, golf with your friend. It takes, I think it took me probably from when I decided on my niche to get my first first site version of the site online, probably three weeks, you know, two to three weeks uh, to get a real basic version of the site online. That's a lot better than, than spending three or four months on a site, building it out in excruciating detail only to find that nobody wants it. So it's an extended version of the, of the you know, of the Tim Ferriss landing page pay-per-click model, I guess you could say. And so what are our CB radios? Because I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so CB radios are, are short short distance radios that allow just people to talk to anyone in the in the general vicinity. They're used on on highways a lot. They, they kind of had their heyday back in the 70s uh, and uh, I think early 80s. They were really popular, at least in the United States. Since then, they've kind of faded from the limelight, but they're still used by people on highways uh, to kind of get information about traffic. Truckers use them quite a bit. Um, and so they're, they're just short range, five to 10 mile for the most part, uh, communication devices. So these are like the radios you see in like movies, like truck drivers using, they like talk to each other. Is this what it is? Smoking the bandit style stuff where they've got, uh, you know, radios mounted in their vehicle and uh, and they chat, you know, chat back and forth. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so how much does one of these units cost, like in general? 
You know, it just depends. They go anywhere from, uh, you can buy a real basic one for, for 40 bucks. They go all the way up to, uh, you know, for a good base station, you, you know, three, 300 bucks or so. So they run the gamut and I'd say 50 to 50 to $300. I see. And so when you found this market, did you find a lot of e-commerce competition when you first started out? Or? Yeah, there was, there was a decent amount of competition. And, and in any market that you're going to be, any market that you're going to be entering, unless it's some brand new product or niche that just is breaking onto the scene, you're going to have competition. It's actually a good thing. If I see a market with no competition, it's a huge red flag because it means, you know, no one's making money, no one's on, making it. money on it or there's not enough demand to support it. Exactly. And so there's de- there was definitely competition in there. So it wasn't perfect market, but it was, it was um, based on some of the other, other criteria I found. It was something that, that said, hey, you know, this is this is definitely one of, one that might be promising. All right. And so so you said this is the this business was a drop shipping model. How did you talk to manufacturers? Did you just say, hey, I have a website. I want to start shipping your stuff. How did you convince them to actually work with you? And, and that's something where I actually I was able to find a couple of drop shipping supplies. And so I didn't work right with the manufacturer. It was just uh, picking up the phone, giving them a call and letting them know, hey, here's what I'm doing. Uh, I'd like to work with you on these, uh, to source these products and just chatting with them, just picking up the phone. And it's one, one thing I think that is really important early on. And, and I actually get this question a lot from, from people who read my blog is how do you approach a wholesaler when you're starting a business? Because you want to have credibility and you don't want them to just, you know, discount what you're doing because wholesalers are busy people. They get a lot of people who, you know, have dreams of starting e-commerce businesses, call, talk to them, you know, hours on end and then don't, don't follow through. And so having a really firm approach and being able to say, not saying there's a big difference between saying, Hey, I'm kind of maybe thinking about starting this e-commerce business. You know, would you be able to work with me? And Hey, uh, I quit my job. I'm going to be spending 10 to 12 hours a day for the next three or four months ramping up this business. And it's going to be something where I have a lot of commit, you know, I have a lot of, a lot of skin in the game and I'm really committed to making this work. I'm estimating, you know, having revenues of X in the next six months. I'd like to talk with you about some of the options of working together. That's much more attractive to a wholesaler because they see you're serious and, and there's a much higher probability they're not going to be wasting their time with somebody who's not going to follow through. So even though you don't have a track record, you can at least show that you're in for the long haul. They'll be willing to take that. Right, exactly. Anyway, any, anything you can do to build credibility with how serious you are or your experience is definitely a plus. You know, if you were in sales, you can say, hey, here's my sales record. I've got a lot of sales record. If you're a developer, maybe you can point to the fact that you're very tech savvy. Or if you're an SEO, you can point to some traffic. Or maybe if you don't have any of those, but you're really serious, you can say, hey, I quit my job and I've got $10,000 in the bank. I'm going to be investing in this product over the next three to four months. Anything you can do to set you apart from people who are going to call up and just, just say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. Is it going to be a huge benefit? Because they'll take you more seriously. Yeah, when you're still kind of thinking about it and you're, you're just wasting someone's time. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, people, people hear that, you know, you've got to be, if you're not convinced you're going to be doing it, that's going to come through in your voice and people aren't going to take you as seriously. And um, it's going to make it a lot harder to, to get that relationship off the ground. So, so you found a wholesaler. Uh, how do you negotiate the terms of how to work everything out? When, when you're starting out, you don't have a lot of leverage. And so I would say starting out, don't try to negotiate with them on pricing, on volume, on, on fees, anything like that, because it's, you have no leverage. They, they really don't care. And so there's no reason if, if they give you a chance and, and you're going to be working with them, you know, they're probably just going to test out the waters initially. And so what I would recommend doing is for that first, you know, month or two uh, for, for a venture like this, really just, just test the market. You're, you're not, your primary goal in that first couple of months isn't to make money. It's to understand one, if the market's viable, if there's commercial intent for it Two, get an idea for the supplier and how, you know, how good they are. Do they, do they fulfill orders quickly? Do they have a lot of the stock that you need? How, how often do they screw up orders? How knowledgeable are their sales reps? And uh, really just get an idea for the market, your customers and the business. Then once you start actually driving some traffic and building up revenue and becoming a more and more valuable customer to them, and you prove that you actually are serious, that's when you get some leverage and you can go back to them and say, Hey, uh, we've been doing this for six months. 
you know, we're doing X in revenue. And um, what can you do for me in terms of uh, in terms of discounted pricing or, or better terms? The crucial thing here is it, you really need to have a second source because if you don't have a second source and they know that you're their primary source, even if you're doing a ton of volume, but they're the only place you can get the product, they're going to say, well, sorry, you know, we're kind of we can't really move too much. But having a second source and saying, hey, I'm chatting with supplier B and uh, here's what they can do for me on all this stuff. Having that in conjunction with a, a decent stream of revenue is going to give you a lot of leverage. And so really, that's the time where it makes sense to come back to suppliers and start negotiating. Terms. And so for uh, your right channel radios, how many suppliers would you say you work with? I wouldn't say exactly, but we have we have more than one. Uh, definitely, definitely more than one because we operate a, a number of different sites. And anytime I'm looking at a niche, I won't get into it if I only have one source uh, for the. That's just that's just a dangerous place to be. <laughs> and would you recommend like five is a safe number, or do you need to go all the way to like ten, or is it just like a handful is enough? Well, you know, two to three. If you can get a couple, uh, I. That's that's fine. Um, you know, obviously, the more you have, the better. But um, at least two. So there's there's definitely markets we work with where we only have two suppliers for something. Yeah, I guess if you get five, it's too much to handle. <laughs> yeah, a lot of suppliers and relationships to juggle. So something with the drop shipping model is that when customers return their product, they return it not to you, right? They return it to the drop shipper, or how does that work out? Exactly. Yep. So they'll ship it right back to the warehouse. They don't return it to us. So is there any problems that when that side kind of fumbles, they blame it on you? Or how do you deal with that situation if it ever happens? Definitely, you're going to have problems. Anytime you bring a third party in to be your primary warehouse and, and fulfillment center, you're going to have logistical problems. And so um, that, that does happen on occasion. When that happens, let's say, you know, somebody returns something and it's they're missing the pieces or they said it was defective, but they obviously just used it for three weeks and then sent it back and, and it's all to heck. You know, you just work with your suppliers as best you can. Good suppliers will work with you on some of those things. They'll realize, hey, you know, the value of your business long term is much more valuable than, you know, than, than fighting over a, a 30 or $40 product. So they'll credit you. And sometimes too, you know, being a, one of the disadvantages of drop shipping and the prices you pay for not having to buy any inventory up front or fulfill anything, yeah, sometimes you have to eat those smaller costs. And so I think that's just part of doing, doing business with drop shipping. If you, if you try to always nickel and dime every customer to uh, say, Hey, you know, fight to the tooth and nail on every maybe questionable return. Or uh, if somebody says a defective product was received and you don't ship them out something new that, you know, is fairly inexpensive, you're going to, in the long term is going to hurt you because you're going to have customers aren't happy. You're going to lose credibility. And so eating some of those small costs when they do occur is, I think, really important for building a long-term quality dropshipping business. Since you don't carry the inventory on the dropshipping model, uh, your margins are obviously a lot lower, right? What would be like the industry standard for like? For margins, it really depends on the products, you know, we have, you know, across some of the products or the, the niches uh, that we do operate in, we have margins that run anywhere from 8% uh, all the way up to maybe 25 or 30%. So it, it really varies, varies on the market. Accessory heavy niches are going to give you a, a much better margin. You know, I mean, there's a lot of times if you're selling a product for 20 bucks, chances are your margin on that is hundred percent. You can get it for 10 bucks, but if you're selling something for 150, $200, you know, your profit on that probably is, is maybe 20, 25 bucks at, at, at the high end sometimes. And so your margins really are going to vary drastically. So when you talk about accessories, like for radios, are you talking about like cables, screws, or what accessories do you mean? Sure, yeah. I mean, you've got cables, you've got, uh, you know, microphones, you've got, you know, different mounts and antennas. There's a lot of different accessories um, that, that kind of go into building a whole CB system. So, and it'd be the same for something that applies to a ton of different markets. I mean, you think about Apple, you're not going to be drop shipping Apple products anytime soon. It's not something they're going to let you do. But uh, I mean, you've just got, you've got loads of accessories for the iPhone and, and, um, selling stuff like 
like that, you know, I'd imagine, you know, people aren't going to make at most of their money on the iPhone, but if they were reselling it to other people, I, I'm guessing their, their wholesalers or distributors, they don't make a whole lot on, on the iPhone, I would guess. I guess where they're going to make their money is they're selling an iPhone case for 35 bucks that costs, you know, $4 to make. Uh, and that's where they're going to make a lot of their money. Yeah, that makes sense. That's like how the telecom industry gives away the phones and they make it off the recurring uh, subscriptions too. Kind exactly. Of. Yep. You know, give away the, the major main product and then try to get people either on uh, on the back end with other other things. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what Amazon's doing now with the new yeah. Fire, right? Just gonna, just gonna mention that that popped into my, my head too. You know, they're trying to sell. Have they come out and said that they don't make any money on the Fire? Do you know? Very little, if not any. But, but I think their strategy is to just get everyone with a Fire and then they'll just do the one one click buy on Amazon and just make it off the back end. Oh, it's true. I mean, I have one of the old school original Kindles um, with the keyboard and, uh, you know, bought it for 150 bucks, something like that. And, uh, I, I never thought I'd buy as many books as I do, but it's got one of those worldwide 3G um, uh, cards in there. And man, I have bought a ton of stuff off of, <laughs> off of the Kindle because it was easy to do and it was just convenient. And I'm sure, I mean, that's where they've made their money off of me. It wasn't on, on, the, on the hardware. So it's an interesting model. But then also, you got to be careful too. I was looking, I can't remember where I saw this, but I saw, I think it was maybe on Hacker News. There was, there was a chart called the difference between Apple and Amazon. And it had uh, their quarterly profits compared next to each other over the last, I think, maybe 12 quarters. And it was just, I mean, it was staggering the difference. You think about both of them in terms of, you know, obviously they're huge, well-respected players, some of the most well-respected players in the technology space. But you look at the profitability of Apple versus Amazon, and it was like a 100x difference. It was crazy. And, you know, Amazon definitely has taken the long-term approach, while Apple is, is, is taking more of a, you know, make money off of the, the devices up front. But it's it's a good model, but man, you got to wonder how long it's going to take take Amazon to catch up with Apple because there's a huge gap right now between them. Yeah, did you see how Amazon is starting the same day shipping? Yes, yeah, same day delivery for stuff, which is is nuts. You know, and I, I read an article on that too, saying you know heralding it as the death of all e-commerce or, or maybe all uh, local commerce for for mom and pop businesses, the ones that are remaining. And so yeah, it's fascinating. It's I mean they're going to have to do a lot of build out, obviously, and <laughs> their infrastructure is going to have to expand pretty dramatically. But it's an interesting idea. Like the structural implications are pretty big because if Amazon has such a huge inventory of stuff to buy, like you eventually would just go to Amazon and search instead of going to Google, right? And you wouldn't need to go to your local store for anything that's commoditized. Yeah, I, if you're if you're trying to operate an e-commerce store for a commodity business now, it's yeah, I think your prospect pretty pretty dim. I mean, I I'm an Amazon Prime member, and so you know we get we get two day free shipping on everything, and you know I think it's three ninety nine for overnight. And there's stuff that I used to go to to Office Max or, or local places for. I mean, I just don't anymore because, you know, toilet paper, if it's free two-day shipping and I can just get it from my house, why, you know, why, why spend 45 minutes driving out to, you know, to target a big box store or the local supermarket and coming back to get it? So it's really interesting what they're doing. And I think the next, you know, five to 10 years are going to be fascinating to see what, see what Amazon does. Yeah. And I think on that blog post we're talking about, is that I think they said eventually the marketplace will just be live showrooms in a physical store and then you buy it online. And then e-commerce will just sell stuff that you can't find that's not commoditized, like handmade stuff, like, you know, maybe specialized, customized stuff that you can only find online. So It's crazy. One of the nice things about kind of a, of a niche e-commerce business is, you know, like, again, like I mentioned, if you're selling commodity stuff online, uh, you know, you better have a, a pretty good way to differentiate yourself from Amazon or you're going to be in trouble. But one of the good things about Amazon is is they are so huge and they are so massive that they they can't be all things to all people. You know, if you're if you're if you're buying something real basic, you can go on Amazon and and uh, read a few reviews and probably get it fair degree of confidence. But the more complex the item is, and the more maybe interchangeable components it needs, or the more difficult it is to decide what exactly 
what specific product is right for you. That's where there's a lot of value to be a small e-commerce shop because you can really focus in and laser focus on that um, and add a lot of value with education and and product guides. And that's something that Amazon's, you know, proved me wrong a lot of times. But I don't able to do that in, you know, in, in expertise, you know, a real expert detail for everything they carry. So that's opportunity to compete with Amazon is I think. Yeah, and I think when you try to compete on price, Amazon is just going to kill you. So I think the mentality is that like, you know, not how can I sell it cheaper, but how can I add more value? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I, there was a, uh, there's a kind of a customer interaction that, that I had uh, last week really, really illustrated the, the, the only way you're going to be able to compete with Amazon. And we do follow up uh, emails for all of our customers after they buy about a week after just saying, hey, how was your purchase? Did everything work out all right? Uh, if not, please let us know. And I, we got a reply back from a customer who said, hey, really enjoyed the service. Your site was really informative, but I was really upset because after I purchased, I went on Amazon and found out that I could get it cheaper there, you know, and that was really disappointing to me. And I probably will let other people know about that. And, you know, so initial reaction was, was that was tough. He was, you know, he was really disappointed because obviously Amazon had it cheaper. And so our response to him was, Hey, we're really, really sorry about this. We try to offer a really high degree of customer service and, and product expertise to help you make sure everything works properly. And if we did, you know, if we tried to compete on price, we wouldn't be able to do that. We followed that up by saying, Hey, we noticed that, you know, in your order, you said this certain cable wasn't working out for you or it was short. It was shorter. We're going to go ahead and ship you out uh, a longer, longer cable that you need at no cost. Uh, you know, don't worry about it. It's going to show up in the next, you know, know, three to four days at your house. And so he, you know, what that did in a couple of things is one, let him know our value proposition. And then also we backed it up with action, sending him, a, sending him a product and, you know, it probably cost us, you know, maybe 20 bucks, 25 bucks to send it out to him at no charge. But the response that we got from him was, oh my goodness, this is awesome. Thank you so much. You know, now I see, you know, you were serious and I can see, I can see the value in paying a little bit more for the product, both in terms of expertise and being taken care of on the back end. So, you know, we gained a customer for life. And then also he went out and onto one of his, his forms and wrote us a global review saying these guys are fantastic they sent me this cable that I needed after everything you know when they didn't have to and you know highly recommend them and so taking that long-term approach and really offering quality customer service and and, and you know not being you know not worrying about those small costs to, to take care of happy customers, I think is is really a great way for building a loyal customer base. And I think that's something big companies still don't understand now. They still think like, oh, these guys complain, let them complain. And it becomes a huge firestorm on the internet. Then they do something. Oh, yeah. I mean, have you ever tried to get a, a major product warrantied, uh, like say from a company like, uh, you know, Panasonic or Sony or something like that? No, I haven't. Oh, it's a nightmare. I mean, almost universally, the experiences I've had are horrible. I, I dropped a, I had a pretty, pretty, you know, high-end camera, uh, digital SLR that I purchased and was really happy with it. But then it stopped working well within the warranty period, sent it in and just even, even understanding what was going on with the warranty process or getting some, some answers on something was a nightmare. And then on top of that, they, there was some, some crazy problem that they said wasn't covered by the warranty. And so, you know, I was out of luck, the, the $800 that it cost for the camera and the lens or something like that. And, and I don't know, I mean, it was Panasonic. It was awful. I mean, they have good quality products, but their warranty services is, is terrible. And on top, that like when I went to their Facebook page, I'd post, I'd post like, Hey, what's going on with my warranty? Why haven't you guys, you know, gotten back to me or I'm really disappointed in my warranty service. And instead of getting on there and replying and saying, Hey, I'm really sorry, sir. Let's work with you on this. We'll give you a call and talk to you about it. You know, they deleted my Facebook comment off of their, their wall, which just infuriates me. And so, and now, I mean, obviously now we're talking about it on this podcast that people will listen to. And, and so it's, it's tough. I mean, Gary Vaynerchuk talks a lot about this and, and uh, it's, I think, I think, I think it's true. I think the going forward, providing just awesome customer service is going to be increasingly valuable in a social economy. So with Amazon 
you know, kind of dominating the whole online space. Would you still advise people doing the dropshipping model these days? Or you know, I do. I think you got to be you got to be deliberate about how you find a niche. And I do. I really like dropshipping. I like the model because it's it's you know it lets you get started really cheaply and it lets you test test a market. And even though I've you know I have a number of of established dropshipping businesses that have been operating for years, and I still use dropshipping probably say for for the majority of my orders. You know, like we were talking earlier about about margins. And let's say you know again they vary, but let's say your average dropshipping margin is if you do it properly. Properly, you, you pick a good niche, you add a lot of value. Let's say it's 20%, just on average. Probably a little high, but you know, if you have if you have a good niche and a good at, you know, value adding website, I think that's reasonable. So 20%. If you go to a wholesaler, a lot of times their margins, so you've got a manufacturer, the wholesaler, and then the, you know, the the, the retailer, the, the site owner. Margins for the drop shippers or for the wholesalers when they buy it from the manufacturer and resell it, I mean, they're gonna be they're gonna be small, five, six percent, maybe. That's in my experience for a lot of items. And so, you know, you're looking at, at three to four X the margin, even as a drop shipper than you would be for a wholesaler. And this isn't across all products, but in my experience, it, it has been kind of the metrics I've seen. And so, I mean, we've looked into buying products whole, uh, wholesale from the manufacturer. And a lot of times it just doesn't make sense because by the time you look at, you know, the price you have to pay, the capital you have to invest up front, the fulfillment that you have to be able to, to manage either through a, a third party who fulfills it for you or doing it yourself, just doesn't add up. And so I, I do, I, th- I think it's, you got to be strategic on how you pick a, pick a niche and, and where you're adding value and, and what markets you get into. Dropshipping is definitely a viable option. So, so you might as well lose the five or 6% in order to not carry the inventory and do any of the fulfillment. That's what you're saying, right? You know, 5% of margin uh, on a, let's say, you know, if you've got 25, let's say you've got 25, 25% markup from manufacturer all the way to the end product. And again, that's maybe a little bit low side, but we are talking, talking drop shipping. Yeah. I mean, I'll give up, I'll give up 20% of my margin overall, you know, 5% out of 25% pie to not have to deal with inventory, not to have to deal with fulfillment, not to have to deal with, you know, tie up all my capital. I think that's a great trade. Yeah, so, so why hasn't the wholesaler figured this out? Like, why are they doing wholesaling? You know, it's just a different business model. To be successful with e-commerce and online sales, there's a lot of things that I think you need to be proficient at. You got to be able to market. That's one of the, I think that's one of the biggest problems e-commerce merchants have is, is they don't have traffic. And, uh, you know, pay-per-click traffic has gotten so expensive that if you try to, try to do pay-per-click on a drop shipped item that cuts into most of if not all of your your profit margin so you got to be good at marketing to be an online store you've got to be decent at customer service you've got to be able to add value you've got to have some tech you know a little bit of tech savvy behind you not a ton but but enough you know wholesalers they just they focus on buying products distributing them and that's it so i mean there's a lot of wholesalers with if you go to their websites and you look at like uh, a lot of wholesale distribu- distributors websites they look like they're straight out of the 1990s you know the is in the 90s when the internet was getting going made it give you know all sorts of stuff you know all the, the old table formats in the, in the rows and so so it's just not their skill set um and so it's 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 not as hard to do but also the margins are going to be smaller for them i see and so for your drop shipping business how many SKUs did you start so right out with off the bat we started off with maybe between about 100 to 150, maybe right out of the gates, which which sounds like a lot. But when, when, when we got the site up and running, I'm an advocate of really um, creating high value pages, writing your own descriptions. Starting out, I didn't know very much about, about my niche. I didn't know, you know, I didn't have the expertise to write those long descriptions. And so getting those 100 to 150 product stops wasn't too much work because we just did a lot of copying and pasting off the manufacturer descriptions right out of the gates. We, we updated those eventually, but early on, we, we kind of used all the stock information. And so how many SKUs do you have now for the radio business? I'd have, this is a guess, but I'd say maybe maybe 
ballpark 300, 300 to 350 ballpark. And do you find like your customers are very picky on what they buy? Because it seems very specialized in terms of all the equipment and hardware. No, they, they don't. I think there's there's a danger to getting too diversifying too much. For example, we started out with CB radios and then uh, we had a short period of time where I thought, oh, hey, let's, let's do marine radios and radios for boats. And so we kind of went into that for a while and tried to get that off the ground. But it's kind of this ancillary arm that oh, we didn't know it as, as well. And it kind of it kind of broadened the focus. And so instead of just being, oh, hey, this is our core market and we can target right to them, you know, all of a sudden, we had this this kind of other sub business that people were like, wait, wait, why do they sell this too? And so we, I, th- I think it helps to to really focus on something. You know, there's the old saying that if everyone's your customer, nobody is, and you're going to get a lot more traction being able to focus on a certain demographic or a certain customer and limiting your your SKUs and the stock you carry so that you can really be an expert in those items and and focus on those items. And you're, it's going to increase your conversion. It's going to increase your perception as an expert. And so we try to deliberately limit what we do sell and just do a really good job of selling that. And so with your site, since you didn't come from radio background, how did you go find your first customers? Did you just use AdWords or what other methods did you use? It was AdWords, you know, early on, uh, long term, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of SEO in terms of building uh, building traffic for, a, for an e-commerce business, especially a drop shipping business. I think it's very difficult to create a profitable drop shipping business if you're paid advertising. And so early on, we used pay-per-click to test the market, to start interacting with customers, to learn what it was that uh, their specifics needs, desires, and, and, and kind of their needs within the niche. Long-term, it was SEO. So Yeah, I agree. Because AdWords wants to click it, the money's gone, right? But SEO, you know, the link you build today will still be there next year. And it kind of snowballs from there. I rely on SEO. It's obviously it takes a lot longer to, to ramp up and, and there's more of an upfront investment. But yeah, if you're if you're taking a long-term approach, it's it's the only way to do it in terms of e-commerce. You know, if, you've, if you're sourcing something from China and you've got a margins of, you know, 100%, 70, 80% on some larger ticket items, in that kind of area, depending on the market, pay-per-click can maybe make sense. Or if you're selling a software product or something where your gross margin is, is you know, almost the entire of the item, yeah, pay-per-click can make sense. But if you're drop shipping an existing item uh, that's you know available other places and your margins are going to be in that 20% range, man, it's hard to make money with pay-per-click. It's a lot of work. Yeah, and especially if your item tickets are not like, you know, 200 bucks or plus, right? The 5% margin on a $20 item would just kill you if you're using pay-per-click. Exactly. I mean, usually those, those smaller items are going to have much larger margins. If you're selling a $20 item, usually your margin is going to be probably 100%. But still, let's say it's 100%, it's $10. Let's say your average pay-per-click cost is 50 cents. You know, so to get 100 clicks, you're looking at 50 bucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, if, you know, you could have some pretty high conversion rates for that math to make sense. Yeah, it's like what they say. They say volume can't make up for bad economics, right? Uh, you know, we're losing money, but we're making it up on volume. It doesn't work that way. All right. And so uh, I'm not too familiar with e- uh, platforms for drop shipping. Like, how did you build your site? Did you build it yourself? Or are you using like a hosted platform or how does that work out? You know, starting out, uh, the first site that I did was was built on a, an open source shopping cart, uh, PHP shopping cart platform called the Zencart. And, and that was something where just use a template, customized it a little bit, but just pretty much got a, a basic hosting threw it up online, maybe spent, you know, a couple a couple weeks customizing it and, and getting it set up how I wanted to, building it myself, and then launched it. So it was pretty basic. I mean, my first site was was was, was ugly. Because <laughs> I'm not, you know, I can hack PHP. I've got a little bit of programming experience, but not enough to know what I'm really doing well. And I'm a horrible designer. You know, I'd win like worst designer of the, of the year award. So that we, we ran with that for, for a couple of years. And then uh, in the last year or so, we, we moved over to Magento. Um, for, for our e-commerce sites. And it's it, it's kind of the leading leading e-commerce solution that's that's open source. It's pretty resource hungry. It takes a little bit more of a investment in a server to be able to run well and have some decent performance. And it's, it's just a lot more complicated to customize as well. And so, 
in uh, both of the times we've actually done big relaunches with Magento, we've worked with contractors or programmers on to some extent to get those those up and running function, you know, properly. But there's a lot of different options. I think Shopify is a fantastic option right now for getting a store up line, you know, up and running quickly. And uh, you know, there's a lot of other options as well, like you know, big commerce, uh, 3D cart. Um, there's there's a ton of them out there. Yeah, I see. And so Magento, you need like a programmer to do all your coding, right? It, depending on how much you want to customize uh, it, you do. And that's one of the big differences. You know, I would not recommend Magento to somebody who's just starting out uh, in e-commerce. Um, and even if you've got a lot of technical experience, even if you're a PHP programmer, Magento kind of has a downside of taking a lot of time to customize. And, and when you're starting a business early on with e-commerce, the most important thing is not your shopping cart. It's not customizing it perfectly. It's not making sure that your 800 number is in the perfect spot on the top. Like the, the two most important things or the three most important things are getting a site up quickly, driving short-term traffic to that to learn about you know, your niche and your market. Because even if you think you know what your customers want and you know, you know, what's going to be popular in your niche, I guarantee you, you have no idea if you're coming into it for the first time. And so getting something up there quickly to learn about your customers and, and learn what, what you do need to offer as quickly as possible is, is really important. And if you're, you know, if you're spending two or three or four months customizing your Magento site to get it online, that's a lot of wasted time that you should be learning about your customers and marketing your site and, and really getting traction. Yeah, and getting sales, right? Otherwise, you know, you don't want to build a site and then have no sales for like half a year or two. It's kind of the minimum viable product approach where get something that just works at a basic level out there as quickly as possible and start learning about your market and the niche. And then once you've got an idea, then actually spend the time to, you know, write fantastic product descriptions because you know the product well and you know, you know, what, what attributes are valuable to your customers. That's where you can invest in taking good quality product pictures of, of your highest selling products, you know, really encouraging reviews for those items because those are the ones that people look to the most. And so, you know, when my first site, I made the mistake of, or maybe not my first site, but additional sites, I've made the mistake of trying to build the perfect website out of the gates. And it just, it's just a, a bad strategy because it's, you don't know what people need. You don't know what questions they have if you're new to the niche. And so having a shopping cart that can let you get up and running as quickly as possible uh, is really important. And then when, if you want to upgrade to Magento or add more functionality down the line, uh, once you've got some traction, that's the time to do it. Yeah, I guess the same mistake is like making your Facebook page is the first thing to do. Right? Or getting your logo. <laughs> for, for the radio site, for example, I mean, I, the logo that we had for the first couple of years was some hack job I put together in Photoshop on my computer. I mean, it looked horrible. But made sales and still started interacting with customers. And so, you know, yeah, having, having a pretty logo is not, you know, priority number one when you're getting off the ground. Right, so how have you found the community of CB radio buyers? Because I see you have a Facebook page, but are they really active there? Or is it kind of like no one's really on social media? I think it's it's really important. There's kind of a trend with, with social media to try to engage people on every platform. And... Uh, it, it's really this kind of expected need to be everywhere for on every platform for your customers. And I think you need to be really careful. You know, for example, we've tried Twitter using out, you know, Twitter outreach for some of our niches. You know, for some of those niches, there's just nobody on Twitter that talks about them. I think Facebook still is, is the best platform for engaging customers. At least we've seen the most traction with that. We've got a decent engagement on Facebook, and I think people are fairly engaged on that platform. But a lot of times you need to look at not necessarily, you know, people don't necessarily talk about CB radios so much on, on Facebook, but they talk about what they use them for. You need to kind of identify the, uh, the associated communities with your product and then go target those. And so, you know, what people who are buying your product, where, what else are they interested in? Well, probably a lot of them are into, you know, maybe off-roading, maybe they're truckers, maybe they're, they're hunters. And so find those other communities and then try to engage with those levels, you know, those interests of levels. Because if you have a hunter who uses a CB radio, he's probably not going to be real interested in, in, in seeing five or six or seven updates a day on, on the newest microphone that comes out. I mean, that's just probably not going to be as interesting to him, but he will be interested in, you know, new hunting techniques or in the activity 
activities he's using that CB radio to interact with and to engage. Yeah, so there's a pivot, your social media strategy. But I think the also thing is social media is that you have a lot of talk that everyone should be there just because everyone tells you to be there. Oh, I, I think a ton of time and money wasted on social media outreach because you feel, you know, because every ad nowadays has follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And so I think I think social media we found is, is really good for building a reputation, for interacting with customers online. Uh, I've yet to see it drive a real significant portion of revenue. Uh, I think, you know, traditional SEO techniques, uh, guest posting, article writing, um, you know, creating valuable resources for for communities with backlinks to your own site. I think those are much more effective strategies for for generating traffic and and driving revenue. But I do, I do think social media is a great way to to help with your reputation and, and to spread the word about your company um, in a lesser degree. The social media example I was going to tell you because, I mean, episode five, I talked to these two guys that sell condoms in Canada. And they're like, yeah, at first they thought we we're going to get social media, but like, you know, no one talks about this stuff on social media, right? No one talks about like sex toys on Facebook. I mean, it's just not a market for that. So they're like, yeah, social media didn't work for us. Even if there was a market, it's a pretty rare breed of person who's going to, who's going to, you know, hit the like button on, you know, condom sale 80% off, you know, share that with all of their friends and family and uncles and aunts and grandparents. Nobody's going to do that. But what's funny is they found that the condom industry just did not know SEO. I guess they were, no one was tech savvy. And so they got to number one really quick. And they basically dominated that market for like the past two or three years. Or if you can find a, uh, if you can find a niche too, where it's not very, um, it's not a very attractive niche or it's kind of an embarrassing niche. As long as we're on condoms and that kind of slightly different reign of topics, uh, I'll bring up this one. You know, m- my wife is, is pregnant and, you know, she's been doing a, lot of re- a bunch of research into different niches. And that, she also knows that we, we always are on the lookout for, for interesting niches and, and uh, she knows my philosophy of, you know, kind of picking first on criteria and then going into the niche. Not it's not necessarily a passion or an interest-based approach. So the other day she was saying, "Hey, Andrew, I've got I've got a great niche for you." And I was like, "Oh, fantastic, Annie! What is it?" And she says, "Well, I think you could do really well selling breast pumps online." <laughs> <laughs> So what's the rationale behind this? You know, I mean, it's something where, uh, I, without getting too much in the details, it helps women who are nursing new babies be able to, you know, nurse them when they're gone and, and get milk and stuff. Again, I don't want to get into the graphic details, but it's it's something where, you know, it's uh, focused on women, it's focused on pregnant and new mothers who who probably can sell it, you know, who are going to be less price sensitive than the general public because a lot of times people do anything for their new baby. It's got a lot of accessories. And in terms of all the criteria I look for, it's a very interesting niche, but don't necessarily want to be the guy who sells breast pumps online. So there's a lot of other niches like that where they're not that interesting or they're, they're kind of got a little stigma attached to them. You know, those are those are opportunities. Those are opportunities for for people to come in and make high value sites. And and because of all those reasons, that the competition will probably be not quite as stiff as it would be other places. Yeah, and the thing is, the other thing is plugging into a market that's growing, right? Because I think the breast pump market, I guess, I guess there's a big movement of like going natural, right? So kind of that ties into that whole trend. You know, and, and there's some sustainability stuff or, or you know or, or green stuff. Especially, I live in Bozeman, Montana, which is kind of a I don't know if I'd say liberal community but definitely very interested in you know, sustainability and environmental issues. Uh, if, you, if you can find trends or industries that are on the upswing, those are fantastic. And also, you know, if you can look at look for markets where uh, you can look at demographics which make, which make it attractive for you. I mean, a lot of the online entrepreneurs I, I interact with are male. I think it's a male-dominated industry and you just don't, there's definitely lots of exceptions, but there's a lot of niches um, where they're very female-focused and because there aren't as many, you know, maybe female 
online entrepreneurs out there, at least that, that I've seen, um, there's a lot of guys that, again, I'm not going to go into the breast pump industry. There's a lot of guys who aren't going to go into maternity clothing because it's just, they don't want, it's not something they're, they don't want to become the expert in breast pumps or maternity clothing, right? <laughs> they want to, you know, they want to, when they go to a cocktail party and people ask them what they do, they don't want to say, oh, hey, I'm, I sell breast pumps for a living. You know, <laughs> you can, uh, you know, if you're a woman, I think there's a lot of opportunities for, for women entrepreneur in the e-commerce space uh, because there's, I think there's a lack of women entrepreneur that can relate to their customers in that way because there's so many men out there doing it. So if you can find an imbalance in demographics or you can find a, an angle that you have where there's not a lot of competition, kind of that male-female thing, I think that can be also a huge advantage. Yeah, and I think with like all these platforms with like 30-day trials, like you can literally just test 10 ideas and see which sinks or floats, right? And then just kind of carry with whatever works. So. I don't know if I do 10 because I do think with e-commerce, again, it's it's not quite as simple as, as throwing up a single splash page and uh, or a single landing page and driving traffic to it. But you can definitely, you know, you can definitely do, uh, you know, two to three ideas and test those out. You know, with a Shopify Shopify site, you can, you can get up a decent looking uh, respectable e-commerce site. And, you know, if you're adding, let's say you're adding 30 or 40 products and, and you're using just manufacturer descriptions and you put a phone number up there so you can interact with customers, you can get that up in, you know, a long weekend. If you, if you, if you, uh, you know, sit down and hammer through stuff, turn on some good music and get some, you know, get some energy drinks. Yeah. Hammer that out in a weekend and you can, you can get it on line and start testing it. So yeah, it's really nice because it takes a little more time than an average one, but it's it's not a huge commitment to get a site up. Yeah. And the platforms are not like 10 years ago where you needed like 50K to get it back and built up. So I get a lot of emails from, from blog readers at e-commerce fuel and say, you know, Hey, I, I'm thinking about doing Shopify, but you know, I'm not really, it's a little expensive. It's like, you know, I can't remember what their, their intro plan is, or it's $35 a month. And I don't want to give up the 1% conversion, you know, the, the sales charge that are you kidding? I mean, it's, you can get it really quickly. Uh, it's, if you're not willing to invest 35 or $40 a month in your business, unfortunately, you're probably going to have a hard time making this work because that's a pretty minimal investment. And uh, that 1% conversion, if you're just starting out, if you're doing $100,000 a month in revenue, yeah, don't stay on the Shopify plan that charges you a 1% commission on all your sales. But just getting started, that's a very small price to pay to be able to get traction quickly. And then you can always upgrade and get rid of that 1% once you start getting traction. And so, I mean, some of the platforms today make it incredibly easy to get up and running and, and be able to, uh, you know, bootstrap a business without having to spend a ton of time or capital. When would you say is a time to graduate from a hosted platform onto your open source? Um, that's, that's a great question. I would say once you get to the point where you are noticing that you're not able to offer some of the features that uh, that you want to without maybe having to spend a lot of money. Shopify, again, is great for getting up and running. But I think if I if I have heard one of one uh, kind of complaint about the platform is its functionality isn't real robust uh, in terms of, you know, com- like compared to Magento, for example. And I think that's fine. There's a lot of extensions that you can, you can pay for extend that uh, functionality. But again, I think a lot of those are fairly expensive relative to maybe moving to an open source platform. I would say once you get to the point where you're noticing that you're not able to offer some of the, the functionality you want to to your customers, and also that uh, you know you actually are getting traction, you're seeing sales start to increase, that you, you've, you've, you're you've getting some traction with marketing, and uh, maybe you're starting to feel the pain of you know maybe some of those transaction fees, so then that's the time to move. But you know, the time not to move is when you're still getting zero organic traffic. You're not profitable. I think as entrepreneurs early on, it's easy to focus on the wrong thing, focus on spending tons of time on designing that perfect logo because you really don't want to deal with the harder issues. And so, yeah, it's a long way of saying I would wait until you're feeling the pain of being on that platform and you're really seeing some of your marketing and outreach campaigns start to pay off. So for anyone that's looking to start a dropshipping business, what's something you wish you knew when you were starting out? I'd say make sure you don't get yourself pigeonholed with one supplier. Make sure you're not building your 
entire business around a single supplier. It took me it took me a, a little while to get that figured out. I'd recommend getting a site online as quickly as possible to start testing the market and get a feel for how commercial it is. I'd, I'd recommend not worrying about uh, making money the first two to three months because your primary goal is really to get yourself established, learn about your market, your customers, and become an expert in the area and test the market to see if it's viable. Really recommend not, not worrying so much about shopping carts because most e-commerce businesses, they don't fail because they don't have a function in their shopping cart. They fail because they're not getting any traffic. And so to that end, really strongly recommend for the first, let's say for, your, for the first six months of your business, I'd spend, you know, I'd probably spend a month getting the site up, researching and getting the site up. I spend a month, recommend spending a month on uh, really interacting with customers a lot and improving that site once you you kind of get a feel for what customers want and where, the, where you can add value. And then I'd recommend spending four months just marketing the heck out of the site because I mean, that's that's where most, most e-commerce businesses live and die early on. So, you know, that's that's two thirds of your time in the, in the early days marketing. Uh, and once you do get some, some marketing in and once you get a, a little bit of a platform and you start generating a little bit of those SEO rankings and you're getting some traction, you can start to snowball. You'll see those effects slowly start to snowball, but marketing, you, I can't emphasize enough the importance of marketing early on with an e-commerce dropshipping business. Yeah. All right. So where, where were we? Oh yeah. I was talking about cart abandonment, right? So uh, I think the industry rate is like 60, 70%. Is that what you saw in dropshipping too? It is. Yeah. I've seen, you know, I, I've seen those rates as well. Um, that, that's pretty standard, I think. I see. And is there anything you found that can like lower it or is it just, it is what it is? You know, it, it's tough. And that's something I need to do. One of my goals for the next, you know, 12 to 18 months is to really get a lot better with, with uh, A-B testing and doing some of those optimizations for our existing sites. In terms of a checkout process, you know, I haven't tested that too much, to be honest with you. The, the real big thing is just make sure you have a product that people want. Uh, make sure that you have a site that conveys trust and authority and make sure that, you, you know, you add a lot of value. Because when I think about stuff, I mean, you're going to get occasionally if you look at, let's say you look at that 70% uh, dropout rate, you're going to, sure, you're going to have people who are going through the process and it's too long, but they get called down for dinner halfway through and they forget to purchase it. And you're going to have people who maybe are going through and they're like, oh, you know, I, I just refuse to create an account here, so I'm not going to do this. But I think the majority of the time people have abandoned the cart, it's for pretty basic reasons. You know, if I want something online, I can't remember the last time I went through and didn't purchase it because the cart checkout had an extra step or because I had to, you know, include my phone number. And so, I mean, there's a couple of things, you know, make sure you're shipping, you you include really, uh, you know, before somebody has to enter the checkout process, make sure you include all of the shipping information. I think that's a big one. If you're not offering free shipping, make sure that, you know, people know how much it's going to cost for the whole price, uh, the whole order total before you make them start committing information. That's a big one. Uh, make sure you have, you know, your policies and, and your, uh, your return information and your privacy policy available on that shopping cart page. I think that's a good one. But again, uh, it's, it's something where I think the primary thing is just make sure you have a good product, make sure you describe it well, make sure you, you convey trust and credibility. And I think for the most part, that's going to be your best best bet at reducing cart abandonment. It's not, I think, the time you invest maybe cutting your, your step down from, from four steps to three. I mean, yeah, you might get a boost, but I don't think it's going to be, uh, I think your time's better spent on, on those other issues. Yeah, exactly. And like shopping cart, I mean, shipping fee, yeah, I tell you that I'll add to cart, I'll see if I want to pay the shipping and then I'll make a decision like, yeah, it's too much. I'll, I'll forget it. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, and, and there's tons of times when I'm shopping on Amazon, I'm not ready to buy something, but I put it in my cart so I can remember it or remember where it's at. Uh, you know, and so, and a lot of times people just aren't ready to, aren't ready to buy and they're just using it as a, as a way to test, you know, see the full pricing or just kind of use it as a wish list almost. Yeah. And even Amazon, like they have the best split test probably on any e-commerce site. They've basically optimized that for the past 10 years. And it's crazy the amount of data they have on you. Like you go, they're like, Hey, you might like, 
like this. And then you're like, oh, wow, I, I actually do kind of like that. And then you start adding stuff to your cart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. You know, and it's, it's funny because like for Newegg.com, for example, do you ever shop at Newegg? Yeah, yeah, a long time ago. Great site, fantastic site, you know. And, and obviously they, I'm sure they've got guys over there doing tons of split testing, making sure their checkout process is optimized. And if you ever have noticed on their checkout page, you go to it and you kind of have to search for the checkout button. It's not all over the place, the proceed to checkout button. A lot of times it's off screen down on the right hand side. If I was speculating and uh, before I did any A-B split testing, you know, I'd come in here and say, what are you doing? You need to move this up. You need to make it huge and green and, you know, and massive and just make it so easy for people to check out. That's not the way it is. And I'm sure they've tested that because I think the majority of people go to Newegg, you know, by the time they get there, the fact that it takes them an extra second to find that checkout button isn't what's driving the conversion. It's the fact that they have fantastic, you know, fairly, uh, fairly good prices. They've got tons of reviews and their service is impeccable. I mean, that's what drives their, their conversion rate. Right. And so you also have a blog. Uh, why don't let's talk about that a little bit. So what's your blog and kind of, uh, What's it about? The blog is, is ecommercefuel.com, fuel, uh, F-U-E-L, uh, you know, like gasoline. So e-commerce fuel. And, and it's just a site where I, I talk a lot about running my e-commerce businesses, how to how to start an e-commerce dropshipping business. In the future, I'll be doing a lot of interviews with uh, e-commerce entrepreneurs, people in the industry, suppliers. Um, and I just talk about what, what I do, what works for me, and and uh, share tips on how to successfully start an e-commerce business. So I uh, recently wrote an e-book called Profitable E-commerce and spent two weeks straight on this book and tried to make it a really valuable resource for, for people who are interested about getting into the e-commerce space. And, and it's really a primer on getting started with, with e-commerce, particularly on picking a good niche and, and trying to determine a good product line or market to get into. And it talks about, you know, what products are really valuable? Like what, what are the attributes of products that sell well online? How do you evaluate competition? You know, how do you uh, do competitive analysis on a, on a market to make sure it's not, you know, impossible to break into? Uh, how do you deal with suppliers and how do you identify good suppliers? You know, how do you estimate, maybe do a, a back of the napkin estimation on if, if a site's going to be profitable or if it's just not worth wasting time. And so that's the ebook and that's what the blog's about. And it's been a lot of fun interacting with people over there. Awesome. And where can we find this ebook on your website? Yeah. So if you go over to, uh, you know, just ecommercefuel.com and then uh, there's a, a link at the top that says ebook. All right, cool. And if we want to check out your radio business, where's the website we can go to? You can check out uh, rightchannelradios.com. All right. Very cool. All right. Thanks so much. Oh, absolutely. Terry. Thanks for having me on. To get more information about running an online store, visit our website at buildmyonlinestore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast.